Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Tonight we're going to talk a little bit about what it takes to have that stability based on trusting in God as we move through Genesis 15. So before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer and make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, again we come before you thankful that we have this privilege, that it is due to the complete and sufficient work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, that he, as a result of his saving work, tore down the veil that separates us from you and gives us that immediate access into your presence. Now, Father, as we come together to study your word, we pray that you would give us a greater glimpse of who you are and what you're doing in our lives, and that we may have a greater understanding of how these foundations are built in our life, that you have uh, these things that you've structured in terms of our salvation that allow us to uh, have salvation, that allow us to have a relationship with you, and are actually the foundation for all of our spiritual growth. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we all had a little vacation on Sunday night. I'm usually loath to cancel class, but you know the job of the pastor is not only to feed the sheep, but also to protect the sheep from their over-enthusiastic approach to doctrine. And uh, I always know there's a few people who, no matter how bad the weather is, they're going to get out there in Connecticut. They would get out on ice and try to make it to class and run into a telephone pole. Down here, you'll try to take your car through, you know, two feet of water on the Katy Freeway or something and, you know, stall it out. So my, part of my job is to protect you from yourself. So I am not one of these pastors who is uh, uh, going to say, okay, we're going to have class no matter what the weather's doing. We're going to cancel at times. So I appreciate those who call in. And uh, I would just... Living where I am right now, I'm not too aware of what's going on in, in the weather department outside. And so the first thing I knew was I had four phone calls in ten minutes wanting to know if we were going to have class because of the weather. Well, that immediately got my attention. So I turned on the weather channel, got on the Internet, and looked at the radar, and, and uh, made a decision, which I think was, a, looking back, was a pretty good decision. It, everything hit right when everybody would be coming to class. But, you know, when the weather's bad, if, you, if, you're, if you're sitting there thinking, you know, I'm not sure if I ought to go to class tonight, 
it's probably a real good reason just to stay home and not uh, put yourself, just be another car out there where there's, where there's trouble. Open your Bibles to Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, we began last time looking at a remarkable chapter in Abram's life. This is the chapter where the covenant between God and Abram is, is laid out. And we won't actually get there till next week sometime because we have some foundational things to go over. But we have to look at the text in terms of what the text is saying. And one of the problems that preachers have is that that you're always tempted, you see a subject and you want to delve into that subject because it's a good subject, but it may not be what the emphasis of the text is, is all about. And there's a number of things that are, that are often done with this chapter that really uh, get away from the thrust of the chapter. And there's a fascinating subtext in this chapter, a sub-theme in this chapter, that is important to bring out for everybody. We live in an age today... When people don't like sound, academic, detailed Bible teaching, they'd rather be encouraged with a motivational speech. They would rather watch somebody stand up and smile for an hour and tell them how wonderful everything is and how they can be happy and how happy they are all the time, and you can be happy too. And we we want this superficial, emotional build-up. And nobody wants to think. And we live in an anti-rational and irrational age, and numerous social uh, uh, commentators have noted that for the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And it just gets worse. It's not going to get any better. This is the trend of the age. This is uh, what happens whenever a society starts succumbing to mysticism. And everybody always comes to church and they want something that's immediately applicable. And you get this silly notion that they need to have stuff that they can take home that afternoon or that evening and immediately put into practice. And what happens is that pastors and teachers tend to either oversimplify the text or they tend to just completely get away from the text and they spend so much time if they, if they read and study during the week, they read self-help books, they read uh, psychology books, they read relational books, and they pull principles out of these books that find their way into their messages under the guise of this is what the Bible teaches. And on the other hand, you have some pastors, and, and uh, sometimes people have made these accusations about me. I've always tried to fight against it because I was taught better than this when I was young. And that is that you make you teach doctrine in such a way that people think it's just sort of ivory tower academics and it doesn't have anything to do with real life. And what I want to do is show you that we're going to talk about a crucial doctrine tonight, which we started the last time, which was two weeks ago, and some of you may not even remember the introduction to it. But we're going to talk about a doctrine tonight that is not taught very much anymore. And yet that doctrine is, is anchored in a text that deals with a problem that, that you and I deal with on a daily basis. And it's just another example that doctrine, or, or theology per se, isn't divorced from, from reality. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, God says, after the, the text says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying what? Don't be afraid, Abram. 
Don't fear. Now, how practical is that? I mean, everybody deals with fear, worry, mental attitude, sins on a daily basis. Whatever the issue is, we're always driven to fear because of insecurity, because of uncertainty, because in some sense our our personal safety is being threatened or we perceive that it's being threatened. And the tendency is to press that panic button and just to to try to solve that problem on our own and to worry and then we just sort of a chain sin through a whole through a whole series of mental attitude sins we're still having that hiccup in our system uh, every now and then i don't know what's jack's trying to come up with what the problem is but it's some it, what it has to do with is radio interference at the at the way this is a wireless mic and at the, at the frequency that it's operating something Interferes, and we're just trying to locate that and find a better frequency, whatever it is. So just bear with us. I try to repeat myself whenever there's that, that little glitch. Anyhow, the thrust of this, the, the context of everything that happens here, the giving of the Abrahamic covenant, is in the context of this very practical mandate from God not to be afraid. So no matter what we do with the Abrahamic covenant, and we can do a lot of things with it, as you know, Because it's so foundational, we can't get away from the fact that it's given in a very personal situation where Abram is feeling as if his personal uh, safety, his significance, his goals, his direction in life are are somehow being threatened or that he's never going to get there, that somehow he may never achieve what he wants to achieve, that there are these enemies out there left over from the Keter-Leomer War, and so there are real and perceived threats And he's afraid, and God is saying, don't be afraid, and I'm going to give you the source of stability. And then when we we noted last time that there's a series of dialogues in this passage between God speaking and then Abram speaking, then God speaks, then Abram speaks, and then there's a summary verse in verse 6, and then we come back and God speaks again, and Abram speaks, there's this conversation, God gives him instruction for laying out the sacrifice. And then notice verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Now what happens? And behold, terror and great darkness falls upon him. Notice he starts off with this command, don't be afraid. And then as soon as he does what God says, he's put into a deep sleep and he's terrorized in the midst of that sleep. The word that is used for fear here is a word for the most intense kind of fear possible. Now, fear is something that's not a stranger to any of us, but what's the solution? The solution is the faithfulness of God. And that's the theme of this whole passage, is that everything is being grounded in the faithfulness of God. And so God reminds Abram in verse 6, or reminds us about Abram in verse 6, that he had already believed in Yahweh, in the word that is chosen in that passage among several possible Hebrew words for faith is the word uh, aman in the hifil stem, meaning to rely upon something that is steadfast, something that is solid, something that is immovable and unshakable. And so the undercurrent of this whole chapter is that God is faithful to his promises. He's making promises to Abram. He reiterates the promises related to uh, the seed in the first part of the chapter. In the second half of the chapter, he's going to reiterate and define even more precisely the promise related to the land. But 
what undergirds all of this is that no matter how uncertain things may be, Abram, no matter how much you may fear today for your safety because of potential threats from foreign enemies, because of the fact that you're getting old and it's getting a little late in life to have children, no matter how you may perceive the threat to your own personal safety, security, your agenda, your plans, your hopes, your dreams, God is saying, I am always there, I'm always faithful, and I'm not going to go back on my promises. Abram had learned this when he was saved. Verse 6 is just a reiteration of that. And verse 7, is going to, God is going to strengthen that foundation through the Abrahamic covenant. But that what I'm getting at, and I've mentioned three times already, is that verse 6 sort of sits in the middle of this chapter, not in the exact middle, but in the center, as the anchor point for the first conversation, verses 1 through 5, and the second conversation, verses 7 through 21. And in 15.6, there's this reference, which is picked up and commented on and utilized by Paul in Romans chapter 4 as the foundation for our understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And we're told that he believed or trusted in Yahweh and this is a significant statement here because of a couple of things that are done in the, in, in the uh, Hebrew text here. He believed in Yahweh, and Yahweh, uh, the sacred tetragrammaton, is always, for a Jew, it's always reminiscent of God as the covenant God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God who gave the covenant at Mount Sinai because it was... To Moses, God revealed the significance of his name, I am that I am, and so that is always tied to his faithfulness and, and, and stability. Abram, Isaac, and Jacob understood that, that that was God's name, and they used that name, but they didn't understand its significance in the way that the later Jews understood it in terms of the meaning given and revealed in relationship to the Exodus event. And that deliverance at the Exodus event, interestingly enough, is rooted and grounded in a prophecy made by God right here in Genesis chapter 15. So that just kind of shows how the Bible connects all these things together. So the issue that... that underlies this is the anxiety that Abram feels about his own life, his own security, his own destiny. And God is going to show what that is based on, that, that he can have certainty and stability even when the details of life are very, very loose and fluid and uncertain. He can still have certainty because it's all, everything is, all certainty in the Christian life is grounded on the character and the person of God. So the underlying doctrine here is the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of imputation. And to understand the doctrine of justification, we have to understand the doctrine of imputation. And it is really hot in here. Have you noticed that? I mean, I got people, you can't see them. They're fanning themselves back there. <laughs> and I'm dripping. Is there... It's got to be turned on earlier. Okay. Let's make a note of that. We don't want to get back in that situation we were in during the prophecy conference. Okay. So we're looking at the doctrine of imputation. The doctrine of imputation. Now, this is an important doctrine. This doctrine underlies your whole understanding of salvation. It underlies your whole relationship to God. Everything is 
built on this doctrine, the doctrine of imputation. So let's define it. It's the action of the justice of God, whereby either condemnation or blessing, condemnation or blessing is assigned, credited, or attributed to a human being. It's the action of the justice of God. This means that it flows from His holiness. The foundation of this is His His integrity, His holiness, His righteousness, which forms the the uh, the, the standard of His character, and the justice, which is the application of that standard. And I find it fascinating that in both languages that God used to reveal Himself to man, in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for righteousness and the word for justice are the same word. In Hebrew, that word is sadak. You'd spell it T-Z-A-D-D-E-Q. And in Greek, it's dikaiosune. Transliterated the Hebrew is tzadek or tzadak, and in Hebrew it's dikaiosune. Each of these words, depending on the context, can either mean righteousness or justice. Which indicates that when we're talking about these things, because they're represented by that same word, you're talking about the same thing, but you shift in terms of its orientation. So that when you're talking about the standard, you talk about righteousness. When you talk about the application of that standard to creatures, you talk about justice. And at the very root of man's whole problem with God is a problem with failing to meet a standard. That's why when you get over into the New Testament, one of the major doctrines related to salvation is the doctrine of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to have something be reconformed to a standard. And that standard was breached when Adam, when Adam sinned. So at the very core of everything, you have this issue of God's righteousness and His justice so that before anything can happen in terms of our relationship to God, This has to be resolved. And the important thing is to understand how it's resolved. It's not resolved through our own personal ethics or morality, because essentially that's not the problem. And what we'll see is the reason that you have, uh, that you are condemned has nothing to do with your personal sin. It has to do with Adam's sin. And once you really understand that, which very few Christians understand, very few people understand, it starts to change your perception of what happens at salvation. Okay. Our definition then begins with, it's the action of the justice of God, whereby either condemnation or blessing is assigned, credited, or attributed to a human being. At its very core, it's a legal concept. That's why it's so important that find this particular reference in verse 6. That was a good idea, Bruce. Turn that heat down. Uh, the, the, uh, we're okay. Is that uh, verse 6, talking about imputation as a legal concept, is wrapped right into this covenant context where God is making a covenant, a legal contract with Abram. 
the more I read the Scripture, the more I realize that God's relationship to man is defined by these legal terms, by legal contractual terms, not by these fuzzy, emotional, relational, uh, superficial terms, which is how modern man wants to, wants to encapsulate and uh, describe all of his relationships with, uh, with God. So we've gotten away from that whole concept of legality, which is one of the reasons we have such a problem with legal issues today and with the interpretation of legislation in the courts. We, we've lost our footing in terms of understanding absolute values and, and uh, what the judicial, judicial system is all about. Now, there's two categories of imputations. Real imputations and judicial imputations. And the term real imputation does, isn't contrasted to something that's unreal. It is in contrast to a, a judicial imputation, as we'll see in the definition. Now, the, this distinction, interestingly enough, I want to give you a little church history quiz here and say who originated this. This distinction originated with Dr. Chafer, Dallas Seminary. I've never found anybody earlier than that who originated this distinction. It was interesting some years ago when I was uh, filling out a doctrinal questionnaire uh, for a church, there was a question on that, on that uh, questionnaire that said, what are the two types of imputations, and explain them. And because of my background, I immediately... Uh, knew that they were talking about real imputations and judicial imputations. Now, while everybody's being distracted here, let's try to keep our attention on this. Later, and this was before I went to Preston City, and that was their, their question and answer. So l- later I went up, when I went up to Preston City, I asked, uh, we were talking about their whole candidating process, and they pointed out, that they had had over a hundred responses, some of them from seminary uh, individuals, from seminary trained men, many seminary trained men, many from Dallas Seminary, and none of them could even answer this question correctly. They never had been taught this distinction. That's partially because since the early 80s, no student has been required to read Dr. Chafer at Dallas Seminary. And so if you don't read Chafer, you're you're never going to be uh, you're never going to become acquainted with this kind of a distinction. I said, well, as long as you keep that question in your your uh, doctrinal questionnaire, uh, you'll never get anybody to come because nobody's taught this anymore. We live in an era when people just want to talk about generalizations and how great it is to know God and and uh, have you found Jesus and Jesus loves you and let's all hold hands and wallow in and uh, Jesus' sentimental love. And this has nothing to do with Scripture. So there's nobody thinking uh, precisely and categorically anymore about these doctrines, or very few people. I won't say nobody. There's very few people uh, at the seminary level that are doing this. So let's define them. Point number two, real imputations. Real imputations credit something to a person which truly belongs to him. That is, there is, a, uh, there is a similarity, there is an affinity between what is imputed and something that uh, is possessed by the person to whom it's, uh, it's imputed. There's an affinity between what is received and the one receiving it. Therefore, when you say that, when you say that, um, 
and a real imputation when you say that uh, eternal life is imputed to a born-again believer, regenerate believer, there's an affinity there, natural affinity there, because he's already regenerate. But when you say that the personal sins of man have been imputed to Jesus Christ, there's not an affinity there. There's no relationship between our personal sin and the perfect Savior. So because we are fallen and our sins are being imputed to Him, that's called a judicial imputation, whereas a real imputation exists, uh, for example, also when Adam's original sin is imputed to our sin nature. That's a real imputation because there's an affinity between the two. There's a correlation between the two. Third point. Judicial imputations occur where the justice of God credits to a person what is not antecedently his own. In other words, there's not this correlation or affinity between what's imputed, what's received, and what's and the person to, who's receiving it. So that's referring to the imputation of our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That would be a judicial imputation. Okay, point number two and point number three, just distinguish real imputations from judicial imputations so we have the terminology down. Point number four, what's the meaning of imputation now? Well, the English word imputation derives from the Latin word imputare, which means to reckon or to charge to one's account. The English means to charge someone with a fault or responsibility or simply credit something to someone. It used to be used a lot in accounting terminology, which is where both the Greek and the Hebrew have their usage, but it's not used so much anymore. It's fallen out of use. In fact, what you'll usually find in some of the modern translations is simply to reckon something or assign something to someone. The word imputation is not used so much in modern translations. It means to reckon, to charge to one's account, to assign something. It's a legal concept. The Old Testament word is the word chashav, and its root meaning is to think. And from this concept of thinking, you get reasoning, you get calculating, uh, you get the idea of assigning value. It's, a, it's an economic term, which is interesting because sin is often looked at as a debt. So there's, there's economic terminology that God uses to uh, help us understand the transaction of the cross. So the Old Testament word is kashav, and the New Testament Greek word is logizomai. And both these words are virtual or tight synonyms. They, they mean to think. Logizomai comes from logic, I mean logos, where we get our word logic, uh, thinking. So logizomai means to think, to reason, to impute, to credit, to assign value. So these are terms that have to do with, with thought. It's not a concrete thing. It is an abstract assignation or assigning of something to something else. Fourth point is that the word is used in a, um, or maybe that, that was the fourth point. The fourth point had to do with definitions, that it has the idea of reckoning or charging to one's account. That's the fourth point. Fifth point, there's a, an example of a secular usage of the word in the New Testament, and that's in Philemon 1.18, where Paul tells... Uh, uh, Philemon, if he, that is Onesimus, the slave, has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
imputed to me, logizomai, just assign it to me. So you see, it's, it's a term that has to do with accounting and assigning value. The sixth point, the basis for justification is the character of God. We can't understand justification without understanding the character of God. The character of God relating to his justice and his righteousness. That has to be resolved. You often hear people say, well, I don't know how a loving God could ever send his creatures to the lake of fire. I mean, you say that God loves us. Well, how could he send us to eternity in hell? And I always like to respond to that, well... How can a righteous God let a lousy, rotten sinner like you into heaven? You know, let's twist the, twist the emphasis here and throw the burden back on their shoulders. I'm not worried about the love of God. I'm worried about the justice of God. That's what the issue is. We have violated God's standard. So the basis for justification is the character of God. Point number seven, man, therefore, is ethically worthless. Ethically worthless, not ontologically worthless. We have value because we're created in the image and likeness of God. But we're ethically worthless because we have violated God's standard. We're not just neutral. That second sentence I have up there is very important to understand. Man isn't just neutralized. We don't move from from a positive value to zero. We move into negative territory. There is a, there is a, we, we don't just lose righteousness, we acquire a, 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 an unrighteousness. And this becomes clear, will become clear to you a little later why I make that distinction. Isaiah 64, 6 says that we are all like an unclean thing and all our, un, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. It doesn't say our unrighteousness is like filthy rags. That's what most people hear when they read that. It says all our righteousnesses, that is the very best that we do, is viewed by God as filthy rags. That's the deficit that we approach God with. It's not just, we're not in a position of neutrality. We're in a position where there is a, a, an ethical deficit. We are like filthy rags in God's sight. Therefore, Point number eight, there must not only be forgiveness of sin in the process, but there has to be a positive addition of righteousness. Now, where this is important is if you're ever witnessing to someone who's a a Roman Catholic or out of a Roman Catholic background, their view of sin, going back to the Middle Ages, is that sin is a privation. That's the technical theological word that that, um, Roman Catholic theologians use. Privation simply means you're, you're missing something. You're missing something. See, as far as they're concerned, evil is just the absence of righteousness. It's not the presence of a substantive evil or a substantive unrighteousness. So they've diminished, at the very core of their understanding of, of man's being, what, what evil and sin is. It's just a, merely a, uh, an absence of, uh, of sin or an absence, I mean, excuse me, an absence of righteousness, an absence of good. So there, the, that ends up making man neutral. And if man is neutral, what can man do? Man can do something to please God. You see, all this fits together. So that's why it's so difficult. I mean, I, when I was in Preston, we had, I mean, almost everybody in the church came out of a family that was Roman Catholic, and they were witnessing to their to their cousins and their brothers and their families and 
and everybody, and it was so difficult because uh, with, with many Roman Catholics, they, they believe Jesus, they believe he died for their sins, but to get them to understand that it's only that, only faith in Christ, and faith in Christ alone that saves, is so important because they've got all this other stuff that they're also relying on at some level. And they've never really stripped all that excess away. So it's really difficult. I mean, people ask me all the time, well, do you know if so-and-so was saved? I said, shoot, I don't know. Number one, that's between them and the Lord. But I know that when I was at the University of St. Thomas here working on my master's in philosophy, there was one other uh, pastor there from, who was a THM from Dallas Seminary. And he and I spent, I don't know how many, much time, interacting with the priests and the other uh, professors there over the gospel. And we'd come away just really shaking our heads because it's, it's never really clear that even when they say they're believing in Jesus alone, when you come back around another way, that Jesus really wasn't alone. And, and so it's just difficult to try to nail this because at, at the very core of how they've defined terms is this uh, non-biblical view of sin and evil and everything. And so this is why you had the Reformation. And one reason I, I tell you this is because I know some of you have Roman Catholic friends that you want to witness to and you want to make sure they understand the gospel and you want to make sure they understand it clearly. And let me tell you, if you just take a superficial approach and say, like, like a lot of Christians do, I mean, we're, we've all done this, you just, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Yes. You go, Phew, they're saved. Now, maybe not. You didn't make it clear. Because what else are they believing? Are they believing in anything else? What do they mean by Jesus? What do they mean by believe? What are, what are the, what is salvation? You know, you've got to define these terms for someone who has been ingrained in a non-biblical religious system of thought. We have to probe a little more deeply to make sure they've really understood what we've been trying to communicate. Point number nine. Because the essential problem is a legal problem, not experiential, man can't solve the dilemma through which ritual or through works. The problem isn't your sin. The problem was Adam's sin, which we'll get to in Romans 5. The, Adam, the problem is Adam's sin, and because of Adam's sin, we're condemned, not because of our own sin. And because of that, you can't solve it by doing something yourself. You can't turn back the clock on Adam's fall in the garden. Romans 4.10 says, how, talking about um, Abram's faith, how was it accounted? That is, how was his faith imputed? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? See, circumcision was the ritual that was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And circumcision isn't introduced until chapter 17. So in chapter 15, we just have the formal cutting of the covenant between God and Abram. But the sign isn't given until chapter 17. And, of course, we've already said that, that Genesis 15:6 predates even chapter 12. So Paul's argument is, how was righteousness imputed when it was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised. But while uncircumcised, in other words, it's imputed before he does anything, before there's any ritual on Abram's part. 
Verse 11, and he received, that is, Abram received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So you see, it's completely apart from ritual. It's completely apart from any obedience on the part of the believer. So the point, point seven, man, uh, or excuse me, point number nine, man can't solve the legal dilemma through his own ritual or through works. It is a total reliance upon God. And He is the one who gives us the righteousness. Therefore, point ten, legal justification requires a perfect righteousness, an absolute righteousness. There can't be any flaw, there can't be any failure, there can't be any other problems, it has to be perfect. Therefore, we can't produce it. It can't be experiential. Point number 11, God in His wisdom came up with a plan called imputation, which is crediting one person with someone else's perfect or positive righteousness. That's how God solved the dilemma. You can't do it on your own. No human being ever could do it. No human being can be born in such a way that they can always make the right decision because they, they're born with a deficit. They're, they're, they're born a sinner. They're born fallen. You know, we used to uh, have a little saying that we used to use to try to twist people up in seminary and that are, are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you're a sinner? Let me say that again. Do you sin because you're a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? See, when you say, are you a sinner because you sin, what comes first is your sin, and then you become by nature a sinner. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says is you're born a sinner by nature. And because you're born fallen with a sin nature, you commit personal sins as a result of that. So personal sins are the result of being born with Adam's original sin. And because we're born with Adam's original sin and and, and a sin nature, we're what? We're going to commit personal sin, but we're already condemned before we ever commit any personal sin. So God solves that problem because it's not our personal sin that is the cause of our death, so it's not going to be our personal righteousness that resolves it. See, you, you can't have it both ways. People come along and say, well, that's not fair that I'm fallen and condemned because of what somebody else did. Well, the way God designed this whole structure so that the whole human race is integrally related, we can fall because of what one person did, but we can also be saved because of what one person did. And if you don't like the one... You have to do away with the other. We're saved because Jesus Christ paid the penalty and therefore we can receive His righteousness and we can have salvation on the basis of what somebody else did. Point number 12. The justification that we have is based on a perfect righteousness that comes outside of man, not inside of man. It's not based on some ethical improvement that takes place. It's not even exemplified by some ethical improvement that takes place. That's the error that came out of Roman Catholic theology. It's the error that's present in lordship salvation. It's the error that's present in a lot of holiness theology. Is that somehow, if you're really saved, there's this ethical difference. 
But you see, where do you get ethical out of legal? We're talking about a legal concept, not an ethical concept. The ethical concept belongs under sanctification, which is point 13. This distinguishes justification from regeneration and sanctification. We have to draw these lines. Justification, we'll see, comes first. And then because we have this legal standing before God, he can regenerate us. And sanctification is is subsequent to that. We have to distinguish these two. If we connect them too closely, you end up saying, well, the spiritual life, see, that's what sanctification is. The spiritual life is how you know whether you are saved. You've all heard people say that. Well, so-and-so doesn't live like a Christian. They can't be one. They did that. (gasps) Did you see what they did? How can they be a Christian and do that? You know, that's what that implies. That whole whole presupposition to that statement is that that if you're really saved, you're ethically changed on the inside so you won't do certain things. And that confuses sanctification with justification. Um, Thus, verse uh, point 14, justification must precede both regeneration and sanctification. It comes first, logically. It precedes regeneration and sanctification. And point 15, it is distinct from regeneration and sanctification. I'm belaboring this because this just isn't understood today. It was understood by Martin Luther. It was understood by John Calvin. It was understood by the Reformers. And that's what gave birth to the Protestant Reformation and the historic position of the, the, the Anabaptists in the, in the 16th century and the Lutherans in the 16th century and, and the Reformed Church, the Calvinists, the Huguenots, uh, in the, in the 15th century, they understood this and they, they died for this. This isn't, it wasn't, for them, this wasn't abstract theology. If you believe this, in, in some of the places where they lived, you could be sentenced to death and burned at the stake, and many of them were. Philip Schaff, in his monumental eight-volume work on the history of the Christian church, which just goes from the beginning up to the Reformation, stated, No distinction was made by the medieval theologians between the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification, such as is made by Protestant theologians. Justification was treated as a part of the process of making the sinner righteous. Notice that, a process. See, we believe that it's instantaneous. At the moment you put faith alone in Christ alone, you're imputed the righteousness of Christ. It's not a process. Sanctification's a process, but justification isn't. Justification was treated as a part of the process of making the sinner righteous and not as a judicial sentence by which he was declared to be righteous. And that last phrase is what we believe. It's a judicial sentence by which we are declared by the Supreme Court of Heaven to be righteous. That's Philip Schaff, History of the Christian Church. Philip Schaff, by the way, was a held to a uh, form of liberal Protestant theology. He did not have a conservative fundamental view uh, of these things. He was a late 19th century uh, theologian who had succumbed to liberal, uh, liberal theology. Point 16, attempts are often made to try to base justification on some inner quality of the sinner. 
That's what happens in lordship salvation, is how do you know you're saved? If you have real, genuine faith, you're going to exemplify a certain kind of behavior. Therefore, if, you're still, if you claim to be saved and you lie or you commit murder or some sexual immorality, then maybe you weren't really saved. And if you renounce Christ, then you definitely were never saved, because if you were really saved, there would have been this inner ethical transformation. You could never, ever, as a true child of God, renounce Christ. And that is, uh, that, that's just false. That ignores grace, and it's, it's a backdoor legalism. This is, again, was also part of the, of the Protestant Reformation. At the Council of Trent, the, the uh, Roman Catholic theologians got together and countered Protestant theology. And this is what they said. They said, if they were not born again in Christ, they would never be justified. Notice how they put regeneration, born again, before justification. It's that ethical thing before the judicial thing. If they were not born again in Christ, experience, they would never be justified, since in that new birth there is bestowed upon them, through the merit of his passion, the grace whereby they are made just. See, the new birth, you get this grace infused in you that makes you just. Justification is not only the bare remission of sins, but also sanctification. Let's take out the middle part of that. Justification is also sanctification. That's what it says. Justification is not only the bare remission of sins, but also sanctification and renewal of the inner man. It is ethical. That's why there's a Roman Catholic Church versus a Protestant Church. The Roman Catholic Church said that justification was legal and forensic. And the Roman Catholic Church says, no, regeneration comes first, and it infuses a change in the person ethically. The ban is placed, the uh, the Council of Trent went on to say, the ban, that is condemnation, the ban is placed on any who teach that man is justified through imputation of the righteousness of Christ. That's all Protestant theologians, if they're truly teaching Protestant theology. Exclusive of the grace and love which is infused into the heart through the Holy Spirit. (coughs) So I give this to you just because you need to understand these. Nobody ever teaches this stuff anymore. Most Christians are running around so confused because they don't see the difference and they can't communicate the gospel clearly to their unsaved friends because they don't understand how they're hearing. I remember 30 years ago, 30 years ago, I heard Charlie Clough use a brilliant illustration. He said, if you're going to go over to Uganda or Nigeria and you're going to be a missionary for the rest of your life, you not only have to learn their language, you have to learn how they think. You have to learn what they mean by God in their language. Because there are examples throughout history of people going, they think they have the name of God, and then they go in there and they find out it's the name of some demonic person, and they've... they've you know, lost three or four years of communication. You're a missionary to this culture, to postmodern, experience-oriented, quasi-mystical America. And you have to learn how people in America talk and think and what they mean when they use words like God and spirituality and, and religion so that you can communicate clearly to them when you're talking to them. 
And you understand their language so that when they hear you, they don't just, just reabsorb your language into their framework. Because that's always the tendency of human viewpoint is to twist whatever you hear and, and re, re, redo it, restructure it so that it fits our framework. We do that all the time. You read people. You read. I'll bet you here I could sit down with every one of you if I, if I wanted to take the time and I could find some favorite columnists or writers that you read that you probably think are saved. And we could look at the examples of why you think they're saved and we could say, well, do they really mean what you think they said or did, are they saying something different? And I do it. Everybody does it. We read people and we want to impute to what they say our own viewpoint rather than really listening to them say what they're saying. Same thing happens when you witness. You've got to make sure that the person you're witnessing to understands what you're communicating to them. So when you're, especially if you're trying to witness to someone who has been educated with a Roman Catholic background. Okay, point number 18. The first real imputation was Adam's original sin to the sin nature at birth. Historically, there have been four different views related to imputation or how Adam's original sin affects the human race. And I just thought I'd throw this in at no extra charge just to give you a little background. In the early, early church, you had a real first-class heretic by the name of Pelagius who came along, and he generated all kinds of problems. He was a Brit, came down to Rome, and he said it's not imputation, it's imitation, and every person is born just as neutral as Adam was born. He was opposed by uh, Augustine, or Catholics call him Augustine, Protestants call him Augustine, and he was a first-class heretic because he denies original sin, and he, and he was declared to be so. Another attempt was Jacob Arminius. That's the man from whom we get the school of theology known as Arminianism, which is usually held in contrast to Calvinism. And he, he, he's almost as bad as, as Pelagius. He, Pelagius says they're fully alive, they're, they're neutral. Uh, Arminius, they were just partially dead. They're not fully dead. So they still have, they're, they're, they're still wiggling around. They're, that sin just makes humans sick. It doesn't make them dead. Calvin came along, and his contribution to this theology was a view called federal headship. And that is that uh, Adam was the federal head of the race, and that uh, he represented all of us, just like our uh, congressmen represent us. In Washington, and their decisions are imputed to our decisions. We may not agree with their decisions, but they're imputed to be our decisions simply because uh, they're our federal representative. And then Augustine, going back in time again, introduced the concept of seminalism, that we were actually seminally, that's the word seed, physically participatory. And, of course, both of these last two views are true. Calvin's view is true that that Adam was our federal head, so that Christ is our federal head. Therefore, there can be a judicial imputation. And seminalism also has an element of truth in that the whole race is unified genetically, and therefore that which Adam did as the head of the race can be imputed to the whole race, just as Christ is a member of the race can have his righteousness imputed to all of us. Here's the diagram. You've seen it many times. We lack righteousness. We're minus R. 
Christ is perfect righteousness, and at the cross, our minus R is credited to Him. He doesn't become a sinner. That's not what the verse says. He's made sin. It's imputation. It's not, He doesn't become a sinner. Our minus R is imputed to Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, not to be a sinner, but to be sin. On our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So that His righteousness is imputed to us. And that's the basis. When God's righteousness and justice looks down and sees that righteousness on our behalf, He declares us righteous. And that's the basis for all blessing. That's why we can go to God. We can count on His promises. We can trust Him. We can rely on Him no matter what is going on. And then the key passages are found in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following. Now, I'm going to skip through some of these right now, because not only because of time, but we've touched on the concepts already, but also because it's getting warm in here. Uh, we're about to wrap up. First, point number 19, the first judicial imputation is the imputation of our personal sins to Christ. Second imputa- judicial imputation is the imputation of His righteousness to each believer at the point of faith alone, in Christ alone. So that point in 21, the result then is that man is declared righteous. He's not made righteous. Sin isn't overlooked. It's not just as if I'd never sinned. That's old uh, statement. just doesn't work. We are covered. It's not as if we've never sinned. We are given someone else's righteousness. So the model is Abraham, point number 22. And then finally, the picture of Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3 gives us this picture of righteousness. Old Testament always gives us those images. Zechariah 3.1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So Satan is pictured as the accuser here. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Referring to Joshua. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. That's a picture of a sinner. And he was standing before the angel. And in verse 4, Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. It's that clothing with robes that is the picture of imputation. We are, we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. It's His righteousness, not our righteousness. It's not just as if I'd never sinned. It is His righteousness that God looks at and declares us to be just. And that is the best way to explain the Gospels. People have to understand justification by faith alone. It's not relational. It's not, do you know Jesus? It's not invite Jesus into your heart. See, all that is relational terminology, besides the fact that it's not biblical. The Scripture says you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and when we believe in Him, God imputes to us righteousness, and we are declared just. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank You for this opportunity to study this crucial doctrine of imputation as the foundation for justification in our whole relationship with You. We thank You that You devised such a fantastic uh, plan of salvation for us that takes care of every situation and every issue. Now, Father, we just pray that You would 
help us to assimilate these things and th- as we think about them and study them as we go home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.